0: All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures as we get situated here. You can turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Also take advantage of this time to uh, turn off any noise-making devices. Cell phones, small children, things like that. God is spirit, he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to manifest his faithfulness as we study to show ourselves approved. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for brothers and sisters that are hungry for truth and uh, Father for your faithfulness. And uh, we call upon that faithfulness once again this evening, thankful for God the Holy Spirit who indwells every church-age saint, and the blessing we have to, uh, to have the Holy Spirit be our teacher living right inside of us, Father, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to prepare our heart for the truth of Your Word. We thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All righty, we do need to get a microphone ready to go, and a uh, volunteer to run that microphone if anyone wants to, uh, to do that for us. Eliezer, appreciate that. And I don't believe I had one by email. Or did I have one by email? I might have had one by email and I forgot to copy it across. So I do not have one prepared tonight. If you emailed me and I failed to uh, write that one down, then uh, let me know. and I'll let you take a question. Yes, sir.
1: I was doing a grace note study. um, And one of the questions was, when was the first time a believer tasted grace? And my pondering of it was if we're looking at common grace then even from the womb a believer would have tasted grace i mean just the the mere existence would be i would assume would be a grace existence Mm -hmm. um is there another time you know i don't know
0: I I generally generally with grace notes courses i recommend don't read too much into the question so, I mean, if they were talking about common grace, then, okay, yeah, every human experiences common grace in the womb. Every uh, human experiences common grace when they take that first breath outside of the womb, you know, because you're breathing God's good air, right? Uh, so, you know, in terms of common grace, I, I suspect, though, that that question, was that a part of a course on, uh, on uh, Genesis, or was that on...
1: No, it was uh, Doctrine uh, 103,
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. It. 103 on, on, on grace. Okay.
1: Right. And and that was one of the questions was, when does a believer taste grace for the, basically for the first time? Uh-huh. And I I don't really see any scriptural reference speaking to a believer tasting grace. Hmm. I mean, we got, you know, 1 Peter 2, 3, where it talks about tasting the goodness of the Lord.
0: Yeah, and tasting the powers of the age to come and tasting, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a lot of tasty verses in the Bible, but uh, I don't know that there's one that connects tasting with grace. I'd have to hunt around for that. Okay, that's just what I was wondering. Yeah. I just generally, as a rule though, a general rule of thumb in grace notes, don't read too much into the question. It's not there, None of them are designed to, to trip you up. Uh, none of them are designed to be overly theologically deep. So uh, I suspect that it's talking about maybe the grace of your salvation. That, uh, that that believing by grace through faith is your introduction to grace. And then, of course, you have grace for the rest of your Christian walk. But um, it's been a while since I've seen the answer key on that. So just answer as best as you can and see if, uh, you, if you get it wrong when the answer key comes back to you. <laughs> All right, next question. Carol's got a question. Bring the microphone up here, please.
2: Okay, so I'm going back to one of the last points that you made Sunday at 9.30 on the uh, Philippians class, mm-hmm. and I didn't write down exactly the verse, but we were talking about uh, first first fruit of Jesus, the Father's beloved Son. First for
0: first right. fruits.
2: Agape love. Okay.
0: agapetos for beloved. Okay.
2: Yeah, because you you had talked about uh, Satan not knowing about Jesus. That's it. Whenever, um, until he saw Jesus, until, yeah.
0: Yeah, Herod murdered all the baby boys.
2: So he didn't know about, but why didn't Satan see Jesus in heaven if Satan was there at the court, you know, in his little, because Job, whenever he said, you know, my guy Job, and and Satan was there.
0: Because Jesus wasn't in heaven. Oh, you're saying had he been dead.
2: Well, no, because he, I mean, he was, he wasn't born yet. So he was there with God. I mean, where was he? He was because God would send him to do, do the thing with, he was the angel of the Lord. Jesus was. So he was around.
0: You know, when Herod was murdering the babies, Jesus was born. Jesus was on earth. That's the reason why Herod murdered the babies.
2: Well, okay, that's Because the point.
0: wise men showed up and okay, said, so where during- is he who was born king of the Jews? Jesus had already been born in Bethlehem. So, up to two years prior to that event.
2: Yeah, but I'm talking about all the time prior to that, like the job thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, just all the time prior to that.
0: I guess I don't understand the question. The question. Okay,
2: was... no, it's me. I screwed it all up. Yes. Okay. No, you're right. I understand. I'm I'm all backwards. Yep, I'm backwards. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Glad I could. Glad I could answer that. That's good. All right, let's come out of the front row then. Uh, give me another easy question here in the front row.
1: It's actually going to, I think, clarify the confusion. Uh I think she was asking, uh, why didn't Satan know that he hadn't got
0: Jesus, Mm -hmm. that Herod Mm
1: -hmm. hadn't got Jesus? Mm
0: -hmm. And well, you know, the point being, I mean, he does have access to heaven. He goes to heaven. He can file grievances in the court. And so in Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, Satan spends a lot of time in heaven. He accuses uh, our brethren night and day before the Father's throne. Uh, I believe he no longer has access to the temple that he was evicted from the temple precincts. He does have access to the courts, uh, whether there's other regions within uh, within heaven that he can go or can't go. We don't have a lot of heavenly geography. Uh, that's an oxymoron. Because uh, geo and geography refers to the earth, so Keli- how do you take a heavenly a heavenly geography? But it would be a, yeah, it would be a heavenly graphy. That if uh, <laughs> so, had he been successful, had had he murdered the Christ and had Jesus died in his infancy, conceivably then he could have. Well, he couldn't have gone to heaven and seen Jesus there because the dead, the righteous dead in the Old Testament, didn't go to heaven, they went to Abraham's bosom. And so whether Satan could have gone down there and checked it out to see, you know, um, it's an interesting question. You really got me pondering, never has an assassin been able to verify the success of his death, of you know of his murder victims, by actually going to the afterlife and, and making sure that the soul arrived in the afterlife. Uh, but, you know, Satan conceivably could have done such a thing. But I, I think what you were trying to say several times you've said it, uh-huh. was that during that 28-year period... Right, during the time of silence. There was this silence, and Satan didn't know whether he succeeded or not. Right. Yes. So. Yeah, uh, Satan is not omniscient, and what he knows is what he knows, and what he doesn't know is what he doesn't know. And there are things that angels long to look because they are very uh, uh, mono... not omniscient, but... they only know what they know. Omniscient, omniscient yeah. Omniscient. omniscient mononitioned all right uh back to bill then for our next question any questions over here we're hugging the left side of the room tonight uh
1: this just came to me through this discussion and the questions that were asked um prior to uh christ being born on earth was he just in a spirit form then uh in heaven before he received his body here on earth
0: yes he and we read that in philippians though he existed in the form of god did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped so his existence was in the more the form of god which means that he was spirit and had no body like the father like the holy spirit yeah bradley
2: i can move to the other side of the room if you want no that's all right okay um he had a human spirit I'm sorry? He had a human spirit before birth. Yes. Before the physical birth. That's how I teach it. But yeah. he showed up as the angel of the Lord. How do you think the human spirit manifested itself if he's going around as the angel of the Lord?
0: Or the burning bush or the cloud yeah. by day. Or, how do you or think the human you?
2: spirit manifested itself then?
0: Yeah, I think he had a human soul spirit, because I combine soul spirit with the dividing asunder. So he had the Father birth the, the soul spirit of Jesus Christ. And that is united to the person of Jesus Christ. So, the person of Jesus Christ, wh- where he goes, okay, uh, where, where an omniscient and omnipresent God goes, okay. If you're omnipresent, how do you go somewhere? Aren't you already there? <laughs> All right. So, as you go... so. So then you don't really go, you just manifest as a burning bush or a cloud or an angel of the Lord and so forth. So not really as he goes, but as he manifests, Uh, when the angel of the Lord manifested, your question is, and I don't know the answer, was uh, when the angel of the Lord flew over and killed 187,000 Assyrians in one night, was his human spirit there? present in that angel of the Lord. I think so, but I don't know how to prove that, and I don't know that the, the Bible really speaks to that right, okay. with respect to that. Oh, thank you. Okay, you bet. Boy, we've got some easy questions tonight. Thank you for uh, all of these things. All right, any, last call. Anything else on this side of the room? We've got one right here. Let's bring the up here to Clark. Clark Shockley. Otherwise known as George Ann's husband.
1: <laughs> okay, can you hear me? Yes.
0: yes. Uh-huh. Um,
1: I've alf, I've often wondered about, you know, the, the devil, Satan, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he can read our mind, that's something I, I don't know if you ever discussed that before. Several times
0: we've explored it, and I think the answer is no. Uh, part of the testimony to God's. Glory and God's unique status is that He is God, He is only God, and He is the only one that knows the heart and the mind. And so, but the fact that he can tell the end from the beginning means that he's eternal. He's beyond time. And the fact that he knows the hearts of all men—he's the only one that knows the hearts of all men. So, um, the the power of God, the omniscience of God—that knows our every thought. Satan doesn't have that. No angel has that. Angels are also finite beings. I mean, they're they're, they're majestic. They're powerful. They could kill any one of us that, if they wanted to. But even in their own glory, they do not. They can't read minds. So. And they can read facial expressions, and they can watch us uh, day and night, and they're they're pretty good at judging human behavior. it has been at it a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, at that point, do you have to read minds if if you can read people so well and you can watch them around the clock? Um, but but no, the the innermost part of your being, the innermost part of your heart, he uh, he cannot read that. Absolutely, excellent question. Thank you. Uh-huh. Alright, well, uh, that's good for tonight, and uh, if it didn't get to you, then uh, we'll say, we'll let you go first next week. How about that? I want to return to uh, working out your salvation. This is now the third and final exhortation of this chapter, and it takes us down through verse 18. And so we got verses 12 through 18 to deal with here in uh, working out your salvation. And uh, it's a marvelous thing, it's something to to celebrate, it's something to rejoice over. Uh, The passage ends with rejoicing, as it says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And so in this exhortation, in working out your salvation, it's a joyous thing to learn about, it's a joyous thing to think about. Even if that means you're kind of pre-planning your own martyrdom, your own uh, physical death, because God... Uh, may assign that to us, uh, may assign that to any believer if it pleases him and if it glorifies his son. And, uh, and we may have some dark days in our nation where, where martyrdom is going to become more uh, expected and we should be prepared for that. So as we deal with that, then when we con- conclude this portion, then we'll move on to verses 19 through 30 and handle the second half of the chapter. And that should go fairly quickly, I think. But uh, there is some content there that we got to deal with in terms of shepherding, in terms of Timothy's preparation for ministry. Uh, it, is a, it is a huge chapter for why some men are ready and other men are not ready. And it has nothing to do with the academics, with the Greek and the Hebrew and the systematic theology. It has to do with a servant's heart that is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the sheep. And in Timothy's case he was like-minded with Paul and he was ready to take a church. In uh, the other people with Paul, he doesn't name names but he talks about the rest of them when he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit. Uh, that's pretty uh, telling with respect to the other men that were traveling with Paul on that third missionary journey. So uh, we'll we'll deal with that and take some time to, to do that. And so that gets us down through the end of the chapter and then we're ready for, for chapter 3. But for tonight we're still dealing with uh, working out your salvation and uh, paying attention to a couple of things here in the, just verse 12. Uh, paying attention to the so then and seeing that this clearly is linking what precedes it with what follows. This, uh, you can't just brush this off as, as a generic uh, uh, therefore, okay? Uh, there are therefores and there are therefores. There are many different ways to say therefore and some are more strong and some are weak. Some are kind of idiomatic. But this one is, is very powerful, very strong. It insists that you have to think through the doctrine that precedes it because that is the basis for the command that follows. And so we took the time to look at this. We took the time to examine any time that hosta uh, is is in the text, any time hosta introduces either a dependent clause or an independent clause. Those are different circumstances. And when it introduces an independent clause, uh, does it do so with an indicative verb or does it do so with an imperative verb? Makes a difference. All right, And so some people that have taken the time to, to chart through not only do they list every verse where the word shows up, but they also break it down like the Deg lexicon breaks it down to show how hosta introduces dependent clauses and how hosta introduces independent clauses. And when it introduces independent clauses does it do so with indicative verbs or does it do so with imperative verbs? See, And that makes a difference for how it's used in the in the uh, usage, in the syntax of a uh, of a passage. And so here we're looking at an independent clause followed by an imperative. This so then has a command and the command is work out. Okay? Work out. And we have uh, a verb that we haven't introduced yet but it comes up at the end of verse 12. In fact it's the last word in verse 12. And this uh, this too is is interesting and I showed it to you once upon a time I can show it to you again. Philippians two twelve. Nope, Phil two twelve. There we go. And make it large enough for the back row to read it. How about that? And so, in English, we start with the so then, and we end with fear and trembling. That's not the order in the Greek. All right, in the Greek, it starts with the hostess. Starts with the so then, right? Got your capital omega there for hosta. And look where it ends. It ends with the work out imperative. So it puts the so then up front and it puts the imperative in the, uh, in, the in the closing spot and, the, and it does so for emphasis. It just jumps out at you. And when you're reading through a long verse like that and you're trying to find the verb, <laughs> you know, so then, okay, where's my verb? Where's my verb? It's all the way at the end. That's a monster attention getter right there. All right. So work out. Work out. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If we take it in word order, we would swap it around and we would say, just in a raw word order way, we would say, So then, beloved of me, just as always obeyed, not only in presence of me, but also now. Much more, in my absence, with fear and trembling, the salvation of y'all, y'all, keep on working out. There you go. That's the word order. Yes, the salvation of y'all. It is a plural, all y'all. Okay? It's a singular salvation, soteria is singular, but the of you is the of you all. It is a collective group possession, uh, possessive adjective, see? So, we'll talk about that as well. Um, in any event, so we have a so then, and we have what comes before the obedience of Jesus and what follows the obedience of the Philippians, okay? On both sides, Jesus obeyed, so the Father exalted Him. The Philippians have obeyed, and Paul's urging them to continue in that obedience, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, that one time he passed through town, but now, ever since then, much more in my absence. He has not yet made it back to Philippi, not even for his second time or his third time. He has not yet returned to Philippi when he is writing to them here in this context. Work out your own salvation. So, um,. We talked about under subpoint A the fact that Jesus was obedient without limit, as were the Philippians. They were obedient. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember how that came in stages? That Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the Philippians as well, being obedient in Paul's presence, in Paul's absence even death on a cross, Okay, even if they're called to lay down their lives, even if they're called to take up the cross and follow Christ. And so without limit, the Philippians there are going to be imitators. Uh, the Philippians always obeyed in Paul's presence and in much more in Paul's absence. And this tandem, the combination of presence and absence, I think is remarkable. And it's a useful study for us at any time. Significant, since that's the definition of the church age. The use of Perusia and apousia is significant since the absence and imminent presence of Jesus Christ defines the entire dispensation of the church. You and I, I mean the whole church age is the age of an absent Savior. It's an age of Jesus Christ having departed this world, right? He departed on, on that uh, ten days before Pentecost. He departed and ascended, and the disciples were standing there, right, looking up in the clouds, and the angel said, what are y'all waiting for, you know? uh, He's going to come back and uh, go into Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit's going to come, and ten days later, the Holy Spirit came. And so the church age, that began the church age, right, on Pentecost, when when the Holy Spirit descended, church age begins. And we've had an absent Lord ever since. He's been seated at the right hand of the Father, he's head of the church, but he's head of the church from heaven. He's not been walking on this earth, and He can't walk on this earth until the Jewish people are repentant, right? So we have um, the absence of our Lord, yet we have the promise of His return. And when can His return be? Right now, tonight, any moment. And so we've had that imminent return of Christ ever since He departed. It's been the doctrine of imminency with respect to the rapture of the church. And so uh, these, uh, these concepts are important. In any event, we went through all those. So then, my beloved. When we talk about beloved, we're talking about agape love, and we're talking about a noun, cognate noun, uh, that comes from agape love, and that's agapetos. And so agapetos, this is a beloved one. This is not a philos, which would be a friend or a lover. This is not, uh, it doesn't come from philos love. It doesn't come from uh, eros love or eros love. It doesn't come from Storge. Um, you know, we've got all these different terms for love, but this is an object of agape love called beloved. And it's used throughout the New Testament. It's used, first of all, it's used of the Father's love for the Son. God the Father loves the Son. He says, behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Behold my beloved Son. Three times that uh, he announces that. And uh, Matthew 3, Matthew 12, Matthew 17. Behold my beloved Son. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the issue here, right? So if he loves his son and still expects his son to die, what can we expect, <laughs> right? How do we think we rate? If we think that we're above suffering, why do I think we're above suffering? What gives me that idea? When his beloved son had to suffer, why do I think I'm exempt? Why would I be entitled to not suffer? Uh, is there, you know, can I claim a verse that, that it limits uh, the suffering of God to, to what? Okay, So uh, these verses here. Now we read Matthew 3, Matthew 12, Matthew 17. We did not read Mark or Luke. Uh, some of these are parallel, but not all. So um, we can look at them here quickly. Mark 1:11. This one is parallel to uh, the baptism event. So we've already read the, the account of this in, in Matthew 3, but here's uh, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, baptized by John and the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. And uh, it's a great passage, by the way, if you ever want to teach Trinity, because you got Jesus Christ as the Son, you got the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove, and then the voice from heaven must be the Father uh, that announces the sonship and the good pleasure. And uh you got the whole Trinity right there in one in one view. And so the good pleasure, the beloved son, the agapetos, huios. Mark 9 uh, 7. Mark 9 7. And uh, this too has a parallel in uh, Matthew uh, with the transfiguration event. And so uh, Jesus had promised that some of his disciples were going to have a preview of the kingdom. Said some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom. Then six days later he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and uh, brings them up to observe the transfiguration. And uh his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. <laughs> how about that? Only only Mark the Servant would record that in the gospel. Uh Matthew and Luke didn't record that, but Mark the servant understands how hard it is to get your whites white in the in the ancient world before you know, before modern things. All right. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know, where did that idea come from? Okay. <laughs> did that come from a verse somewhere? Did that come from, I just I think it came from Peter's overactive imagination and desire to do something, make an impression. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. You ever get so overwhelmed by divine majesty, you just start babbling senselessly? Mm -hmm. All right, well, that's that's Peter. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my Agapetos, my beloved son. Listen to him. And so there it is. Mark 12 and verse 6. Now, this one. it's a parable. And um, a man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower, rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So whose land is this? <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's, the, it's his. It's not the, he, when he rents it out, he didn't sell it to them. He's renting it to them. They're expected to work it. It's his land. It's his vineyard. It's his wall. It's his wine press. It's his tower. I mean, how much has he invested in this? This is all his. And then these workers show up that he rented out to. At the harvest time he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him. Sent him away empty handed. He sent another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another. so that One they killed with so many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, an agapetos huios, a beloved son. And they sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. Why would they do that? <laughs> they didn't respect your slaves. What are, they, are they fearful? They, they kind of think you're a chump at this point. I mean, they're, they're abusing your slaves. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. I don't understand the logic of murdering the heir, and then that means you become the heir. How does that work? Or it's just, you know, mob rule, we take what we want, and if the guy won't stop it, then he won't stop it, I suppose. But in any event, he will stop it, because uh, this is the beloved son. And uh, we have the pattern there. All right, Luke 3.22, and Luke 20. Luke 3.22. Again, baptism event, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. While He was praying, heaven was open. The Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of the heavens saying, You are my beloved Son, in You I am well pleased. And Luke 20, verse 13. And again, it's a parable of the, of the vine growers. So, uh, parallel to what we had in Mark. Now, okay, so I get it. Jesus is the agapetos. Jesus is the beloved son. What about us? What about other people? What about one another? Well, we do have the use in Acts 15.25 that the Jerusalem apostles, they called Barnabas and Paul beloved. And that's curious to me because there was a bit of some friction there in their ministries and there was some conflict There were issues that were being raised with respect to Gentiles getting saved and some of the hang-ups and some of the problems that Jewish believers were having, like uh, these unclean, renegade Gentile dogs, you know, who had no Bible of any kind. They had no Old Testament. They had no Hebrew Scriptures. They had no claim to the covenant. They had no God in this world. But now all of a sudden, they... They seem to be receiving the Holy Spirit and having an equal part in this New Testament ministry. And, uh, and so, so there were some real hang-ups there. There were some real issues. And so they had this conference here in Jerusalem to answer some of these things. And that's what Acts 15 here is all about. And um, Anyway, when they come to the conclusion of this and they write a letter to announce um, the conclusion of this conference, It says, um, so in verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they're going to be the agents of the Jerusalem church. They're going to travel with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to report, to testify as far as how the conference went, to carry this letter with them. And uh, they're going to end up becoming uh, ministers themselves. And Silas is a co-author of First and Second Thessalonians and traveled with Paul on the second missionary journey. Um, in any event, they sent this letter by them, verse 23, "...the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings." And so it's going beyond Antioch. That's interesting, because Cilicia, that's where Tarsus is. That's where Paul was for ten years before uh, Barnabas grabbed him from there and took him to Antioch. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind to select men and to send to you with our, here's the term, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Okay? And, I th- and you can take beloved, I want to double check that if, it's, if beloved is plural or singular there. I, I suspect it's singular. It's our beloved Barnabas and Paul. <laughs> okay? Uh, or it's our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think that's a clue as to Beloved? Remember Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life? You know, there is a basis whereby in the angelic conflict, in the Christian way of life, in the, I mean, there is an esprit de corps, there is a love, there is a, there is a fellowship that comes about as we lay down our lives for one another, as we serve one another, as we regard one another as more important than ourselves. You know, if someone throws himself on a grenade, does that impact how you think of them? In... Uh, you know, the aftermath of that, okay? Well here uh, here are Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the context where he calls them beloved. And I find that interesting. So, first of all, agapetos is used of Jesus as the Father's beloved son, then it's used by the Jerusalem apostles. Then used throughout the New Testament epistles, the term is featured 27 times by Paul. Often invocative address, often when he's talking to somebody, when he, had, when he kind of pauses in a letter to turn and address them, his readers, like what we have in Philippians 2. Therefore, uh, so then, my beloved, right? He kind of puts his letter on hold and he just directs his readers uh, with a focused address for their application. So as you featured 27 times by Paul, often invocative address or extending greetings to his fellow workers. If he's sending a letter to Rome, for example, and he knows that he's got fellow workers there, then he wants, as the letter is read, he wants greetings to, in particular uh, to mention these particular people. Okay, And this won't take a whole ton of time because it kind of preaches itself, but I, I do want us to read them and I want us to be familiar with some of these names that often we wouldn't be familiar with and for other reasons. But in the evocative of address, of the book of Romans, don't we love the book of Romans? Isn't it great theology? Isn't Romans like our, our, uh, the, the magnum opus of, of justification by faith and the tremendous you know, systematic theology of the Apostle Paul? But look who it's written to. This is the evocative of address for the letter. He says, "...to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints." Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so right here, we've got the Reformation doctrine that every believer is a believer priest, every believer in the church age is a saint, and every believer in the church age is beloved, agapetos. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So if you are bought by the blood of Christ, then you are agapetos in the sense that this is what we're dealing with here. So to all who are beloved in God, of God in Rome called as saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the evocative of address writing this epistle to the believers in Rome. Chapter 11 and verse 28 talking about of course Romans 9, 10, 11 are dealing with Israel and why they're under a hardening and why God has set them aside for the time being, only until the church is finished, then He will restore His plan for the Jewish people. Romans 11.25 says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own, under, un, in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I, I tell you, I wish more believers would pay attention to this because it just bugs me to tears when I encounter bad doctrine, I encounter bad theology and, and replacement theology and just terrible things. We shouldn't be uninformed. It's right here. Uh, that it's a partial What you know, partial, you get that? Partial. Not all of them. Some Jews get saved and it's only until, guess what? It's not forever. It's until. All right. So all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. With them, not with us. With them. When I take away their sins. The national sins of Israel. Again, people get confused because you know we get so subjective and we think well my sins were forgiven. Yes your sins were forgiven. Absolutely your sins were forgiven. But that's irrelevant compared to when the national sins of Israel are going to be removed when the blood of the covenant will be applied to Israel. Then verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are, what are they? Beloved for the sake of the fathers. Israel is beloved. Always have been, always will be. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance or irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Anyone that defends replacement theology calls that verse a lie and says, well, God revoked His covenant with Israel, replaced it with the church. Are you kidding me? If God is that kind of a a, a liar and a cheapskate and an Indian giver or whatever else you're going to call him, that He can give something and take it back, what kind of cheap God is that? What kind of capricious, phony, fake, liar Worth it? I mean, that's not even a God I want to save me anyway. What kind of a loser God would that be? And if that's the case, then I'm not saved. What's to stop him from revoking my uh, (laughs) gifts and calling? Okay. So, the fact that he's not, and that gifts and calling are not, anyway, all of this is is powerful truth. So there's a use of beloved as it applies to his earthly people, the Jews. Israel is his earthly beloved nation. Chapter 12 and verse 19, back to the church again for chapter 12. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's another vocative of address. He's talking to his readers in uh, Romans chapter 12, and he calls his readers beloved. Look at the string of these in chapter 16, verse 5, 8, 9, and 12. This is a string of greetings. So in verse 5 he says, Greet the church that is in their house. That would be Priscilla and Aquila from verses 3 and 4. And you'll notice, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Here's a benefit that multiple local churches received in the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. And greet the church that is in their house. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. You think how precious that is if, you know, because he'll always be the first. He's always the first one, you know. Think about the first man that got saved in this building when we moved in here in in, uh, 2010. And what a thrill that is to to hear from him every once in a while. All right, so that's uh, the beloved Eponidas. Otherwise, uh, what else do we know about Eponidas from the Bible? Nothing. <laughs> Here's our one little clue to Eponidas. Paul called him beloved. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet, uh, that's verse 8. Greet uh, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. And the last of these is verse 12. Greet Tryphania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. There's a story there I'd like to find out someday. Alright, so there's all the, the beloved uses there. First Corinthians 4. So we see how common this is? And how uh, we don't use it so much around here. We kind of limit it to weddings and funerals with the dearly beloved we've gathered here today. You know, maybe we need to start using it more for things other than weddings and funerals. Maybe just natural, uh, you know, conversation with one another in the Lord. You know, maybe maybe in text messages, we could say. (laughs) Beloved. Yeah. All right, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as... My beloved children. My beloved children. See, so just so, you, you know, this is Corinth we're talking about here, right? It's not like it's Philippi. You know, I get it with Philippi. But with Corinth? Yes, with Corinth. Remember, it's agape love. It does not take into account the merit of the object. And so the person is beloved not because they deserve it. The person is beloved not because they've done something for you lately or you like them, okay? Agape love does not take into account the merit of the object, and so to admonish you as my beloved children, verse seventeen. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, as I, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And so, you know, if this was written in say fifty one. 52 A.D., if uh, Timothy's been traveling with Paul since 49 A.D. or 50 A.D., if uh, 1 Timothy was written in 62 A.D. or 61 A.D., you know, we're just ballparking on on all these epistles. But how old was Timothy? How young was Timothy? Because in 1 Timothy, Paul says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. So how old do you have to be where a flock quits looking down on you as a kid, you know? Um, is he in his thirties? Is he in his twenties? How old is he? Because remember, it's ten years later when Paul says, "Let no one despise thy youth." And so he's already have, has ten years of ministry under his belt. He's already traveled. He's already written First and Second Thessalonians with Paul and Silvanus. He's already been a co-author of books of the Bible. Anyway, my suspicion he was he was probably ten or twelve years old. I think he was a young man. Um, probably just shy of marriageable age and started traveling with Paul as in his youth and uh yeah all right beloved and faithful son uh 10:14 1 Corinthians 10:14 Do we know this one sure we do no temptation is overtaking you but such as is his common to man and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's calling the Corinthians his beloved. 1558. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. In the Lord. Second Corinthians seven one, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Are you detecting a common theme through a lot of these? Nowhere in any of these is the person referred to as beloved and then given a free pass and told that he can just chill out and relax and not and you know have everything handed to him. No, it's it's a it's not a go to laziness. It's a go to diligence being God the father's beloved son does not say hey you know i'm i'm boastful and proud of myself now and i can kick back and be lazy and do nothing no the beloved son just works all the much harder being uh, identified as beloved becomes motivation we love because he first loved us if he calls us beloved then man why does he call me beloved i want to i want to serve i want to i want to bear fruit So um, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Don't, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's a snare. Maybe that's a mindset you can fall into. Um, Do we we take it for granted that we're beloved? Do we then kind of get sloppy or lazy with it and, and lose the fear of the Lord? Okay. Being called beloved doesn't mean we need to stop fearing. We need to serve God with a reverence and an awe because our God is a, concern, is a consuming fire. 12.19 2 Corinthians 12.19 All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, my beloved. So just because Paul calls him beloved mean he's not chewing him out and telling him to straighten up and Stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things. Ephesians 5.1 Why am I turning there? Haven't we all memorized Ephesians 5.1? Therefore be imitators of me as beloved children. Be imitators of me as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Ephesians 6.21 But that you may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Yeah, that's the verse that pops my bubble. This is the verse that gives uh, a biblical sanction to walk up to somebody and say, how you doing? (laughs) Okay? Or how are you? So that you may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. All right, so there he is. The beloved brother and faithful minister. And tattletale, the one that answers the question of how Paul's doing. But he's called the beloved and faithful. Beloved brother and faithful minister. Tychicus. And um, of course we have Philippians 2.12 where we are tonight. It's going to come up twice in Philippians 4.1. To introduce the closing chapter here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. It's used twice. He repeats it there. And then he tells Yodi and Sinechi to cut it out. Knock that off. Colossians 1, seven. Just as you learned, ah, here we go. Paul had never been to Colossae. like Rome. He'd never been to Rome when he was writing the book of Romans. He'd never been to Colossae when he was writing the book of Colossians. He knew some of the same people. They had friends in common, you know, would have shown up on the Facebook list like you might know this person. Um, And so he talks about Epaphras. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So there's Epaphras called Beloved. Uh, So that's Colossians 1. We've got a string of them in chapter 4. Colossians 4, verses 7, 9, and 14. As to all my affairs, here's Tychicus again, our beloved brother and faithful servant, fellow bondservant of the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. Uh, Verse 9, and with him Onesimus... Our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, and a runaway slave that stole from Philemon, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, the agapetos doctor, I forgot the word for doctor, but the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas that's our only verse that tells us Luke was a doctor, as if all the medical terminology in Luke and Acts and in, in, uh, Hebrews wasn't a big enough clue. So those are the Colossians' references. Um, 1 Timothy six 2, 2 Timothy 1, two, and then Philemon. 1 Timothy 6. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor you got a boss you don't like? This is your verse. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Look, if you're a rebel and a troublemaker and the problem child on the shift, that's not a good testimony. Your boss is going to look at you and look at, you know, your fellow workers and think, wow, I need more atheists on this shift. I don't need that griping, complaining, grumbling, disputing Christian. Okay? Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. So if your boss is saved, don't use that against him. Serve him all the more. Second uh, Timothy one two Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father Jesus, That's how he addresses the book of 2 Timothy. And then finally Philemon, who we just saw in Nesimus at the end of, of uh, Colossians 4. This is the flip side of that. Along with the book of Colossians came a personal letter to Philemon saying, by the way, I'm returning your runaway slave. And in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and the Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And then verse 16 um, talking about returning Onesimus says, you know, perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave. When he ran away, all you lost was a slave. But now that he's come back, you know what you got? <laughs> you got more than what you lost. Because now you got a slave and a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you? Both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so there's the, uh, the use there. There's such a doctrine in Philemon. You know, returning this the slave, he could have been crucified. Let's face it. A runaway slave under Roman law could have been crucified. And yet, Paul says, if you regard me a partner, accept him as he would me. (laughs) You know the doctrine in that verse? We realize Jesus was our advocate, Jesus took our place. This is Jesus talking to God the Father and says, hey, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as he would me. If you missed it Sunday night, there was a powerful class on imputation. I hope you, uh, if you missed it, get the... uh, Get the mp3 off the website. Eliezer did a marvelous job on imputation there. And this is what he was talking about. This issue right here. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Take all those sins, put them on me. I'll pay for those at the cross. (coughs) All right. Anyway, it's a marvelous doctrine. So there's agapetos. Beyond all those uses, Paul wasn't the only author in fact, Peter loved it, John loved it. Additionally, there are five uses in 2 Peter chapter 3, six uses in 1 John, and four uses in 3 John. 3 John's a tiny little book. But Agapetas shows up three, uh, four times in that tiny little book. Six times in 1 John. Five times in 2 Peter chapter 3. Do you like 2 Peter chapter 3? I love 2 Peter chapter 3. Why? Because according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. Okay? Plus a bunch of other beloveds in that chapter. Are we bored with these yet? Let's uh, wrap these up that so we won't have to come back to them on Sunday. Second um, Peter chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Uh, Verse 8, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Verse 15, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So here's Peter again calling Paul beloved. So if he dissed Paul back in Acts when he called Barnabas beloved and Paul, uh, here, there's no question here. Paul gets the beloved title here. All right. Our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them all these things, in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. We're uh, just starting bibliology in in, uh, Geisler and this verse is significant. This verse helps us identify what belongs in the canon, what what is considered canon, what is considered scripture. And Peter accepted the writings of Paul as scripture. Totally on par with the Old Testament. Totally on par with the, the gospel records. All right. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So five times in this chapter Peter keeps writing to beloved, 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 beloved. He says this is the second letter I'm writing to you to stir up their minds by way of reminder. Six times in 1 John Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Four one beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. four seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so here we got this tandem because not only is it beloved, but the verb is agapao. So agapetoi, let us agapao one another. For agape, so we got a noun, a verb and another noun. Agape is from God. And everyone who agapaos is born of God and knows God. So there's beloved in verse 7. And finally verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then four times in Third John. When was the last time you sat down and read Third John? <laughs> okay, well here we go. 1, 2, 5, and 11. That's four out of the 15 verses. Third John, verse one: The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. You ever think about that? When you're in prayer meeting and you're praying for somebody's physical health recovery, because uh, you know they've got sickness or cancer or whatever, you know you're praying for their healing. Do you ever tie their physical health to their spiritual health? Third John dies. That you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. You know, why do you want to be fit as a fiddle physically if your spiritual life's a wreck? Then uh, verse 5, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. And this is the excitement that John has when he's writing to Gaius when he's writing and talking about uh, Gaius's walk. He says in verse 3, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. You know? You hear word from somebody about somebody else you used to know years ago and you find out, wow. Okay? Like I got an email from a guy in New York that used to be in the Navy with Gary Williams and uh, read an obituary and found out that Gary had been a deacon and uh, and Gary had been saying, he he couldn't believe it was the obituary he was reading so he... uh, sent me an email and said, is this the same Gary Williams I served with on, you know, in the Navy? And Yeah, same Gary Williams. He got saved. <laughs> wow, imagine that. <laughs> and so here's John saying, wow, I was glad when these brethren showed up and told me you were walking in truth. Who would have thought? I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in truth. Nothing could make a pastor prouder or a, a parent. All right. And so beloved you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Whoever this Gaius was, I think he had the gift of giving, he had a hospitality ministry, he had a wonderful way to express the love of Christ through supporting uh, the ministry of the Word of God. And they went out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Why would they take money from unbelievers? It's our blessing to support one another. Therefore we ought to support such man so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Anyway, then there's some other things that are happening here with diatrophies and that. When we you get down to verse 11. He says, Bre- uh, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. All right. Well, there it is. And you can read those other verses tonight and say, hey, I've read 3 John now. So there we have it. With fear and trembling, the salvation of yourselves keep on working out. We're going to be slightly Yoda vocabulary on this. We're going to put, uh, we're going to have a different word order than standard English. But with fear and trembling, the salvation of yourselves keep on working out. And uh, Sunday morning, Lord willing, after pending, we'll come back to this. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the beloved Son and for the doctrine of beloved, that that we are beloved, Father. Beloved in your sight, beloved in one another's sight, if we uh, are like-minded with with your way of thinking. I pray, Father, that we might uh, start thinking more and more in these terms, and uh, considering the the beloved aspect of one to another, and all of us before you, Father, and uh, use these concepts to help shape our thinking to, to glorify our Savior. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.